This is my tribe. 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 What's up? Welcome to the Tribe Night Messages podcast. Tribe Night is for students who are curious about faith and eager to discover how a relationship with Jesus could change their lives, their schools, and the heartland. For more information, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at cstone.students or text tribe to 94000. Hope you enjoy the message. everybody hi how are you I love you too I love you too I love you too I love you too (laughs) so what I can't hear you oh I wore this extra small shirt just so that my triceps look gigantic um how are you guys doing tonight I see some Starbucks drinks. Thanks for asking me if I wanted anything. Um, a lot of hand signals going on. Hang 10. Hook them horns. No, we don't do that. You do that down. Did you say yeah? Hook them horns, man. I love you too. Um, I'm so excited that all of you are here, whether you came on your own or you were dragged to church or your parents said, get in the van, you're going to church, and that's the end of it. Tribe night is one of my favorite nights of the week. There's a lot of other places I can be right now. There's a lot of things I could be doing right now, like sleeping, but I love getting to hang out with you. Yes, you chuckled. It's only 6.45, and I said I would be sleeping right now. I don't normally get to take a nap on Sunday, so I would love to go to bed early. Um, If that makes me old, I will deal with it. Um, But before we get into tonight's message, I want to take just a quick moment and say that I am extremely proud of Lane Ross, who got baptized this morning in Vienna. It's been such a cool journey getting to see a lot of you on your faith walk take your next steps in Christ. And Lane, it's been really cool to see how God's used you since last November, last September, when I first got here to now, how you're inviting an entire community of people to come to church with you and how God's doing great things in you. So keep up the great work. Um, And it's a very important reminder to all of us that even if we've been a Christian for a very long time, we all have a next step. Whether it's us reading our Bible more or us praying more or us following Jesus, for the first time, or maybe for the first time, getting baptized. And so this upcoming weekend, at the second service on Sunday, 11 o'clock, J.C. Carver's getting baptized. So let's give it up for J.C. Um, God's doing some awesome things 
in our ministry. Now, just for a second, I want you to go with me back to a time in life where life was a little more simple, a time where you could poop in your pants and someone else would deal with it for you, a time where we were toddlers. Growing up, one of my favorite games to play with my friends was hide and seek. How many of you guys loved hide and seek? Like in some form or fashion, you crushed some hide and seek. See, as a baby, we called this game Peekaboo. Like this is one of Simeon's favorite games. You say, where's Simeon? And he covers his face. Let's see if we can get him to do it. Hey, Simeon, Simeon, where's Simeon? Where's Simeon? He's not going to do it. He's like, all these people are staring at me. We did not rehearse this. But he normally covers his face and he starts giggling because he thinks that he disappears from the room. Like, only a toddler thinks that covering your face means that you're not in the room. Once, he, once we got a little older, it went from peekaboo to hiding and covering your eyes or hiding behind curtains. And then some of us played this game when we were bored teenagers and we would find the best hiding places. Or if you were lucky, you might have grown up in a church that played sardines and a lot of people hid in one little spot. Or when we started driving, we played hide and seek, but it was not really hide and seek. We took our friends and stuck them in a car. I'm not suggesting that you do this, by the way. We stuck them in a car, we blindfolded them, and we had a 20-mile radius in a city, and we dropped them off somewhere and took their cell phone, and they had to figure out how to get back to base. And that was really fun, unless you were the person blindfolded. One time we played, and we shoved Tamara into a porta potty And if you don't know Tamara, she hates porta potties So if you ever want to get on her bad side, just shove her into a porta potty I don't recommend that. Um, she might kill you with her pinky. Um, for those of you who don't know, she's a big deal. That's all I can say. She's in the Army, and she knows things, and I don't know. She goes away once a month, and she comes back, and people go missing. So that's all I can say. Um, but ironically, staying hidden isn't just something we do in a teenage version of hide-and-seek. It's something we actually do in life. The more serious situations get, the more we start to hide portions of ourselves from other people. And a lot of us do it in various ways, and we do it as a self-preservation to not get hurt. Maybe it's something you wish wasn't a part of your life. Maybe it's something that started small and innocent, but escalated to a place where it's more difficult to keep what you're trying to hide hidden. This can happen in a lot of areas of our lives, but we're going to look at one area in particular today. If you got our text, we said that you're not going to want to miss tonight because this is a very important topic. If you didn't get our text, make sure you text the word tribe to 94,000 so you stay in the loop of what's going on. But we said this topic is so important that we decided to scrap the last two weeks of our series that we were in because this topic is something that I guarantee that you're in one of three camps. Either you're dealing with this, you know someone that's dealing with this, or you're on the outside looking in, trying to figure out, what do I do when this comes my way? This topic is so important that last week, the CDC director, so the Center for Disease Control director, I don't know what you think about the coronavirus. I don't know if 
Some people in the room probably think it's fake. Some people in the room probably like, why do we have to wear masks? I don't care where you are on this, but the CDC director last week released a statement that said, more high school students are committing self-harm and taking their life that are then are dying from the coronavirus. So there's more high schoolers taking their lives than there are that are dying from the coronavirus. So tonight, we're going to talk about self-harm. And I don't know if it's just me, but when someone mentions self-harm, the room gets extremely awkward. Like, I said self-harm, and the entire mood of the room shifted a little bit. Some of you sat up straight. Some of you avoided eye contact altogether. I get it. It's not an easy thing to talk about. But let's all just take a deep breath on the count of three. Here we go. One, two, three. So we're all going to take a deep breath, and we're going to travel through this together. Some of you got extremely nervous because you're involved in self-harm right now. I don't mean like literally right now, but if we were to take a look at your last month or last two months, you would say, hey, I'm battling depression, and I've been self-harming myself. Some of you, that's where you are. And for you, you're super nervous because you think I'm going to stand up here and pull back the curtain and expose you. And I promise you that that's not what we're going to do tonight. I will tell you this, that over the past week, week and a half, Morgan and I have sat down with three different students. Two of those students said that they have in the past self-harmed themselves or they're currently self-harming themselves. One of those students said, I actively think about killing myself every single day. These are students that come and worship in this very room. So if you're in that space right now, I want you to know that, one, you're not alone. Two, this is a very safe place for you. When we started Tribe Night a year ago, we said that this is going to be a place where everyone's welcome no matter what, that we're going to let you come in here with your baggage, and we're going to walk through it with you. So if you're currently self-harming yourself or if you're currently thinking about taking your own life, I will let you know that you are worth it that God put you on this planet for a reason. So the second group of you, some of you are intrigued because you have a friend that's struggling with this. You're hoping you're going to get some answers tonight that will help you point this friend back in the right direction. I was talking with a student earlier today, and they're like, I just don't know what to do or what to say to help my friend that's dealing with this. And that's a very heavy weight for some of you sixth graders or some of you ninth graders or some of you seniors to carry. And then, honestly, if we're being honest, some of you are annoyed that we're even talking about this to begin with, because you don't struggle with this, you don't know anyone that struggles with this, and you would rather talk about anything else other than this because it makes you feel uncomfortable. But chances are good that you are probably do know someone that's struggling with this, and they're just really good at hiding it from you. Can we have a moment of transparency, a moment of vulnerability? I was this last one. In middle school, anytime the pastor would talk about self-harm, I was like, why are we talking about this? No one deals with this. But what I quickly found out as I entered high school that I was quickly the first one. I was the one that I felt like nothing was going right in life, so I was turning to destructive behavior and patterns to try to fill the void that only could be filled by God. So no matter what group you fall into, I want to ask you to lean in tonight because for everybody, 
Whether you struggle with self-harm personally or not, I think there are some questions we all have, and maybe the biggest one of all is this. What do we do about it? What do we do about it? If you're someone who struggles with self-harm, you probably ask yourself, what do I do? Where do I even start to make this better? If you know someone who struggles, or maybe you've wondered, what do I do? How do I help them? How do I tell someone? Or does that make me a terrible friend? So remember, I said we're walking with a couple of students right now through this very thing. And one of the things I keep looking at Morgan and saying, um, this kind of stuff keeps me up at night. This is why I signed up to do this job. This is why Morgan signs up to do this job. This is why Morgan drives an hour and a half every day to come see you guys and to work in the office and come to tribe night because we care deeply about every single one of you. I'm not going to lie. I probably don't know half your names because I'm really bad at names. But what I do know is that God knows everything about you. Your deepest desires, your darkest hurt, he knows. So what do we do about it? If you're someone who struggles, you've asked this question. If you know someone that's struggling, you're asking, how do I help them? Do I tell someone? What do I do? So we'll get to that in a minute, but first let's make sure we're all on the same page about something. Self-harm itself takes on many various forms. It could be burning yourself, it could be pinching, it could be intentionally hitting or bruising yourself. These are all ways that people hurt themselves. Some people will intentionally starve themselves. But tonight we're going to talk about one of the most common ways of self-harm, which is cutting. Most people have some sort of idea what cutting is, but you may honestly wonder why people do it. Please understand something. If you're in this room today and you're a guy or girl who cuts yourself, I want you to know that not everything I say today will apply to you. There's nothing that's universal. We all have our own emotions. We all have our own backgrounds. We all have our own baggage. And that's the beautiful thing about the gospel that Jesus is going to meet you right where you are and help you through what you're doing. So none of this is universal, and I'm not necessarily speaking directly to you. My goal is not to generalize or minimize any of this. My goal is to hopefully provide some language to help all of us understand ourselves better and to help people who don't cut get a better idea of why this is such a big deal. You see, when it comes to why people cut, the simplest way to put it in one word is relief. People cut themselves to find relief. People who cut are hurting so badly in their minds, in their emotions, that they just want to stop feeling that kind of pain. So they transfer that pain from their heart to their body. The physical pain is a means to take their mind off of their emotional pain. So let's take a time out real quick. It's getting heavy. Let's all take a deep breath on the count of three. Here we go. One, two, three. So as we were talking to those students last week, the statement that I just read kept ringing true. They were in so much pain. Mentally, 
emotionally, they were done. And their way that they were trying to push through that was to take that pain that they thought was in their head or that they were experiencing real pain, real emotions, and they were cutting themselves or harming themselves as a way to just get their mind off of what was happening around them. So I got saved at the age of 12. At the age of 13, I started ministry. I turned 31 in October. And what I know is this. When you're in that place of desperation, I've been there. A lot of you in this room have been there. Your mind turns into an echo chamber just, just telling you all of the things that you're doing wrong. And you're desperately looking for a way out. But if we're to be honest with each other, that's not why everyone starts cutting. But eventually, it can become addictive because it does temporarily provide a sense of relief, even if it's not the type of relief that one needs to look for. So it provides a sense of relief naturally. It's triggered by experiences that are painful, like stress from school. We're never going to be able to say, knock on wood, hopefully, that there's going to be another generation that lives through a global pandemic, that their entire school, their entire way of life was completely changed in a blink of an eye. I remember where I was when everything started to shut down. I don't know if you remember. I was in Birmingham with Morgan and Travis and Luke, and we were at this conference learning how to be better student pastors. And I got this call from Pastor Michael, and he said, hey, we're shutting the church down this weekend. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm the kind of person, I watch the news every night, and I was like, oh, it can't be that bad. But here we are, it's August, and our entire way of life has shifted. Some of you have missed huge moments in your life. I can't tell you how many drive-through graduations I've been to. Whoever thought we would have a drive-through graduation? Some of you have missed birthday parties. Some of you, this might be your first time in a public place hanging out with your friends. And like I said, we're for you. So I'm never going to tell you your emotions are not real. Just get over it. We survived a Great Depression. We're going to survive this. While, while that's true, your emotions and your feelings and the way that you're processing this is real. And this is a safe place to do that. Some of you... This might be triggered because family mess or a broken heart. That's a big one. If I could look back and tell 14-year-old TiVo one thing, it would be this. Guard your heart. A broken heart, either from breaking up with someone or doing something sexually that you're not supposed to be doing or doing something with substances that you're not supposed to be doing, it's very hard to come back from. There are adults that meet every Wednesday night in our church trying to figure out how to get over their hang-ups, habits, and hiccups. Because at your age, they made decisions that turned into habits and addictions. So guard your heart. Some of you, it's a fight with a friend, loneliness, or failure. Basically, anything that creates pain. You can put it this way. Emotional pain plus physical pain equal relief from pain. But it doesn't stop there. Many people who cut themselves feel ashamed by the cutting, cutting, so they hide it. 
They pull away from their friends and family, which leads to loneliness. They may cut in places where you can't see it or they wear long sleeves or wristbands. Um, the loneliness and shame creates new pain and a new reason to seek relief, creating a cycle that can be really difficult to interrupt. Even if you don't cut, you've probably seen this cycle play out in your very own life. You've looked for ways to relieve emotional pain in your life, even some ways that you know hurt you and aren't good for you. And like some of those secretive things, we turn to the relief from pain. Cutting isn't just unhealthy or addictive. Cutting doesn't work. So like I said, we were talking to those students last week, and that is one of the things that this young man said to us. He said, I'm cutting myself because I'm in so much pain. But what I quickly realized is that that relief lasts only a second, and I get up the next day, and that pain is still there. So cutting doesn't work. It doesn't actually solve what we want to solve. How do I know? Because many people who cut, cut again. Why? Because the pain isn't relieved the first time. It's just numbed for a little while. Um, here's another transparent moment. I don't know uh, if people still listen to Eminem. I don't suggest listening to Eminem. Um, he has some very colorful language. But one of the ways that I would numb my environment when I was younger in middle school and high school is I would blare Eminem just to escape from the world because he was a depressive person and I was depressed and depressed people love depressed company and my mom would get so mad because I would just blare it like the whole house would be rocking um, but it didn't fix anything if anything it only momentarily numbed what was going on people who cut themselves don't have less stress anxiety or self-hatred because they cut in fact many of them admit that it actually makes all of those things worse so is there anything we can do or say to ourselves or to our friends that will even help? So remember, there's three different boats tonight. Either you're in the self-harm phase or you're watching from the outside trying to figure out how to help a friend. Or maybe you're like, why are we still talking about this? But this is all good information to know no matter what phase that you're in. Well, I wouldn't be up here talking about this if I didn't think there was hope. I'm convinced that God has a great plan for your life and for your friends that involves being free from self-harm. But getting there may look a little differently than you think. So just to be clear, people who cut probably won't walk out of here today and never cut again. I don't believe that to be true. For some of you, that will be true. You'll walk out of here, you will never self-harm yourself again. You won't be able to repeat something I say to a friend and magically make all of their hurt feelings go away. I know because I've been in your seat trying to talk to a friend who's either suicidal or dealing with self-harm. Nothing that you can say is magically going to make all of their pain and emotions go away. Things like that just don't disappear because of a talk. But I do believe that you can leave today with an understanding of how to take one big, bold, powerful step towards freedom. And ironically, we're going to get that powerful step from a guy who had almost no power at all. You probably have heard of the Apostle Paul. 
And even though he is now a famous and powerful voice in our Christian faith, he went through some terrible times. We're going to take a look at something he said while he was in prison, where he had zero control over his life and his future. So let's check this out in Philippians 4.8. It says this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, before you tune me out, I'm not saying when you're feeling like cutting, just think about something happy. It's not that easy. If you've ever dealt with depression, it's not that easy just to flip a switch and be happy. What I am saying is that a guy in prison who had no control over anything tells a group of people that they have the power to control their mind. Even in the most uncontrollable situation, we get to decide what our brains think about. And that's a good thing because the mind is a powerful thing. Think about it. Your mind ultimately controls your body. It tells you to stand up. It tells you to sit down and it tells your legs to walk. Your mind tells you to go eat, and you do it. If you don't, it bugs you until your body goes to the kitchen and grabs a snack. But your mind also controls how you feel. If you think about something gross long enough, you will eventually feel sick, like changing poopy diapers. Your stomach will respond to something in your mind. If you think about something sad long enough, you will eventually feel sad whether that thing happened in real life or not. One of the words of advice that we gave those students that we talked to last week was that you need to guard your eyes and guard your ears. The last thing that you need to be listening to when you're depressed is depressing music. It's not helpful. Yes, it might be relatable in the moment, but it will not ultimately help you break the cycle. Interestingly, when Paul wrote the word think in this passage, the original language, it meant to take into account the facts. He's not saying to fake or to pretend. He's saying don't miss what's actually true. Isn't it true that some of us have filled our minds with some powerful yet not true messages? If I were to ask you to raise your hands for these next things, I would think some of us will raise our hands. But don't raise your hands. But here's some of the messages that some of you in this room, myself included, have believed either today or yesterday or we're currently believing or we believed it in the past. You're not good enough. You're worthless. You won't ever measure up. You're not smart. You're not pretty. You're not talented. You're not funny. You're not cool. You're not popular enough. These are the soundtracks that a lot of us play in our heads on a daily basis, on a minute-by-minute basis. We don't choose those thoughts on purpose, but left alone, our minds will naturally drift towards messages like this. Alone in our rooms at night, when no one else to tell us otherwise, those messages repeat over and over again. They begin to sound true and logical, even though they're not. When we allow ourselves to stay alone in hiding, the hurtful messages don't get quieter. Remember the echo chamber we talked about? They actually get louder. 
That's why for everybody who struggles with self-harm, one of the most powerful things you can do is to open up and be honest with another person. Other people can not only point out what's good, they can point out what's true. This is a tongue twi- tongue I can't even say the word. This is a tongue twister, but think of it this way. Hiding grows harm, but honesty helps heal. Hiding grows harm, but honesty helps heal. This is a game changer. If you're currently only surrounded by your thoughts or people that are not lifting you up, breaking this cycle is going to be extremely hard. If you're trying to help a friend that's going through this, your job is to listen and to encourage them, to speak the things that you see inside of them, the good things that God tells us, that they're beautiful, that they were made with a purpose, that they're so important that God knows every hair that's on their head and every tear that they've ever cried. Your most powerful muscle is your mind. What you believe will ultimately decide what you do. That's why the first step to freedom from self-harm is simply believing that it's possible. Simply allow your mind to consider that being free is possible. You may not feel it yet, but consider that it's possible. If you've been cutting, I want you to take a second in your mind right now and just say that with me. In your mind, I believe that it's possible to get out of this cycle. If you've been having negative negative self-thoughts right now, say it with me. I believe it's possible to get out of this cycle. The next step is to refuse to stay in hiding. It might be time to ask for help and to get real. Stop the cover-up and step into honesty. I bet that you'll be surprised by the support you get. I know that the two students that came and talked to us last week, the last thing they wanted to do was sit down with us and say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm dealing with. But what we heard after we talked with them was that there was like a weight that came off of them. That for once, they could kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. So refuse to stay in hiding. I'm not trying to make this sound extremely easy or oversimplistic. I've been there. I've been in that negative headspace. I've been depressed. I've been on the verge of self-harm. And I know that it's very easy for someone to stand on the stage and say, it's going to be okay. But what I do know is true is that it's going to be okay. You just have to refuse to stay in hiding. To come out of hiding and challenge yourself, repeat messages. You'll need to practice two things that are hard for every human on earth. The first thing is vulnerability. Find someone you trust, get some time with them face-to-face, and take the risk. Open up about what you've been doing. One thing I love about our church is that Pastor Michael pushes us all to find people to help hold us accountable. Every two weeks, me and Morgan meet, and there's no question that he can't ask me, and there's no question that I can't ask him. From how are we treating our wives or our fiancés to how are we spending our time with God? Are we looking at things on our phones and computers that we're not supposed to be looking at? How is our language? How are we honoring God with everything that he's given us? It took a really long time for me to realize how important it was to find someone in my life that I can open up to like that. The second thing is this. 
authenticity. This means that you keep it real all the time, not just one time. The good and the bad and the ugly. When you're doing great and when you're struggling, when you're being kind to yourself and when you're hurting yourself. You need to be vulnerable and you need to be authentic with that person. You see, vulnerability and authenticity work because they're the opposite of darkness. Just like mold grows in the dark, cold places, self-harm grows in isolation and self-hatred. If you move out of the darkness, however, and bring the honest you into the light, you begin to take away self-harm's power. And you'll find it possible to make space for the messages in your mind that can silence and replace the messages that are hurting you. So remember our short phrase, hiding grows harm, but honesty helps heal. You need somebody to be honest with. Maybe it's a tribe leader. Maybe it's me or Morgan. Maybe it's your parents. You just need somewhere to start. A lot of us in this room, the tribe leaders, are trained to help you see what is true in any situation. We're here because we want to help you. And nothing you can say or do will ever make us think differently about you. Like I said, I've been doing this since I was 13. Nothing you're going to say to me is going to be, oh my gosh, I've never run into a student that's ever encountered that. Ben, you guys can make your way back up this way. Nothing you could say or do will ever make us think about you differently. Also consider getting honest with someone in your house, someone who can take notice if you're struggling and just come sit with you. Someone you can talk with when life feels bad. You can also reach out to me. Hopefully over time, you'll discover that there are a lot of people out there who will not only show you love, grace, and acceptance, they will actually help you find hope in an area that makes you feel so hopeless. This was big for me in high school. Last week, I think it was, I told you about my grandpa dying. Um, I like to say that, <laughs> unfortunately, my life is full of embracing interruptions from God. Um, my life hasn't been pretty. It took a lot to get to this point of standing on the stage and being able to tell you without a shadow of doubt that God is good, that there's never anything in your life that you will face that he can't help you with. Probably one of, one of the darkest times in my life, there's been many of them, um, that hurt me the deepest, that made me question, God, if this is what earth is like, I don't want to be here anymore. I was living in Tuscaloosa. Um, and I was working at a huge department store as a manager, and life was going great. I had great friends. I made great money, and no one could tell me anything. It was great. I was still in church. I was loving God. <laughs> and one day, my stepdad called me, and he said, hey, your mom just had a baby. I said, oh, she did? That's funny. I didn't even know she was pregnant. How many of you guys have ever heard of that show, I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant, or whatever it's called? We were living that in that moment. You see, 
My mom had started going to the doctor because she was having kidney problems. And the doctor was like, oh, your kidneys are under stress. So the doctor gave my mom this medicine that helped her kidneys not hurt. But also, while helping her kidneys not hurt, it also let her miss the fact that she was pregnant. So for nine months, my mom was growing a baby inside of her and didn't know she was growing a baby inside of her. Needless to say, the baby didn't get the nutrition that it needed. The baby didn't get the first doctor's checkup, ultrasound. None of that happened. No prenatal vitamins. None of it happened. But in that moment, my stepdad called and said, your mom had a baby. It's a girl. And her name is Lauren Marie. I was like, awesome. I have a sister. Only had a brother up to that point. So I was extremely excited. I wish I had the picture here to show you. I went to the hospital and they gave me this big blue button that said, I'm a big brother. I was 22, but I was so excited that I was a big brother to little Lauren Marie. So like I said, my mom didn't know she was pregnant, so she didn't do any of that stuff that she was supposed to do. Also, my mom's a little older. I'm not going to say she's old just in case she ever goes back and listens to this, but she was older. And so all of that added up to the fact that Lauren Marie spent five days in a Nito Native intensive care unit in Huntsville, Alabama. So I remember driving up there from Tuscaloosa to Huntsville, about two and a half hours. I drove up, I saw the baby. Well, I couldn't see the baby. I saw a picture of the baby because they were in the NICU. My brother was there, my grandma was there, my mom was there, my stepdad was there. I was like, this is awesome. My family started planning baby showers because we said, no one knew she was pregnant. I was 22, my brother was 20. She didn't have any baby stuff. I drove back to Tuscaloosa, and five days later, after visiting the hospital for the first time, my stepdad called me back and said, hey, you need to come home. And in that moment, my entire attitude shifted. In that moment, the world seemed to stop. But I got in the car, and I drove home. I still remember it to this day. I got to the hospital. And she was no longer alive. She had passed away. They brought in a photographer. We got to hold her for the first time. Um, there's pictures that I haven't showed even my wife. Me holding my little sister. Five days later. And in that moment, I began to question everything that I had preached, everything that I had knew. Why would bad things happen to me and my family? Why would bad things happen when everything seemed like they were going good? And a lot of that negative self-talk that we were just talking about, a lot of that self-harm that we were just talking about, a lot of the things that we do to numb ourselves, whether it's music or drinking or sex or drugs, a lot of that started to enter back into my life. 
If you would have seen me in that period of time, you wouldn't even thought that I was a pastor because a lot like a lot of you, I walked into a church every single weekend with a mask on, smiling, saying that I am doing great, but on the inside, I was dying. On the inside, I was questioning everything that I knew. On the inside, I didn't know if I truly believed what the pastor on the stage was saying. And I would venture to say that tonight there's someone in this room that's in that very place. Or you know someone that was there. So even if you're not in that place, the reason this is so important is because the person that pulled me out of that dark place in my life was a friend. His name was Gabe. What Gabe noticed was that while I was at church, I wasn't happy anymore. When all of our friends would go out to eat after church, I would just go home and sit in my room by myself. When they were playing video games, I wouldn't log on. So Gabe made the extra step. He stepped into the awkwardness and the chaos that was my life, and he said, TiVo, what is going on? And in that moment, I told him everything. You see, if you have a friend who's self-harming, think about these steps as it relates to them. Be someone who can communicate the truth to your friends about who they are and help lead them out of their spiraling thoughts. Gabe wasn't a pastor at that time. He is now. Gabe didn't have all the right words to say. Gabe was just there. He was a listening ear in a time of need. He reminded me who I was. He reminded me that I wasn't worthless. And as I look across this room, whether you choose to believe it or not, I wish I could sit down with each one of you, look you in your eyes and tell you that you are not worthless. You are here in this room, on this earth, at this moment, for a very important reason. And those are the kind of things that Gabe told me. Did I instantly feel better? No. But you know what started to shift that night? I felt seen. I felt like there was one person in the entire world that finally realized that I wasn't okay, and I was okay with it. Be the person they can be honest with, but also encourage them to find some adults to help them as well. That's one of the things Gabe told me. You need to find someone to talk to. So I don't know where this hits each of you. I hope it's helpful. Help, Self-harm is really tough. If you're currently dealing with self-harm, I hate that you're hurting inside. I really do. I've been there. I wish I could snap my finger and take away your pain, whether people around you think it's real or not. So what we're gonna do is I want everyone to stand up. Even if you have to run to the restroom, don't leave this moment just yet. We're all gonna bow our heads, we're gonna close our eyes.
like I said, if you're dealing with self-harm, I wish I could snap my fingers and instantly take that pain away from you. I want to encourage you to be vulnerable and transparent and authentic tonight. I believe with everything in me that you can move beyond the point where you are. If you're stuck in a cycle of self-harm, my guess is you don't want to stay that way. So find a friend, find a leader, step into the light. You'll be so glad you did. So let tonight be the start of the process that leads you to more emotional health and spiritual freedom. I'm encouraging and urging each one of you that's stuck in this cycle, or if you know someone that's stuck in this cycle and you're trying to help them, to take one step tonight. But don't stop there. Find someone who can continue taking the necessary steps after this moment to get you the freedom that you deserve. Hear me when I say this. You are not alone. There are leaders all around this room that sacrifice so much time every single week to create this environment where you feel safe and secure. There are people around you tonight that want to help. Tonight is about one step, but it won't be the last step. So when you're ready to move, we're ready to help you. I love every single one of you so Ask Morgan. I text him at all hours of the night going, what about this student? What about that student? What are we going to do to reach this school? What are we going to do to reach that school? I truly believe our world would be a better place because of each one. I care about you, and more importantly than that, God cares about you. And I believe that God has a big plan for your life. One of the songs that we sung tonight said we are a child of God. So I'm not going to be naive and assume that every person in this room is a Christian. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to invite you to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. This is not something that we pause and intentionally do every single week, but we might do it in some way, form, or fashion. So if you walked into this room tonight or if you were dropped off at this building tonight and you would say that you don't have a relationship with Jesus and tonight is your night that you want to start that. Tonight is the night that you want to get it right. I just want you to repeat this prayer after me. We're all in the room going to say it together so that no one feels embarrassed or ashamed. So we're going to say, dear Jesus, you can repeat it after me. (laughs) Dear Jesus, Thank you for today. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Today, I choose you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. In Jesus' name. For some of you, you've already made that decision and this talk hits you a little differently. Because maybe you're in that vicious cycle that I found myself in at 22 that some of you found yourself in now or that some of your friends are in and you know about it. For you, I want to encourage you to do something that might feel extremely awkward. I want you to forget that there are people standing around you. If you were at fall retreat last year, we did a moment similar to this and it was probably one of the most powerful moments that we've ever done. 
at Tribe. At the back of the room, there's some leaders back there. Some of you need to take the first step and go back there and tell a leader that you're not okay. For some of you, that's going to be really uncomfortable. And that's okay. Like I said, they're not going to judge you for anything that you tell them. So what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to pray. John's going to start singing. We're all going to start singing. And if you need to move to talk to someone about anything at all, we'll be at the back of the room. If no one moves, that's fine. But what I want to encourage you to do is to take the first step of faith and get out of the cycle. No one around you is going to judge you for moving. It doesn't make you weak. It actually makes you pretty dang courageous. So let me pray for you. God, I thank you for these students. I thank you for what you're doing in Southern Illinois. I thank you that you've created each one of us for a purpose. That you know every hair that's on our head, every breath that we have taken. That you have ordered every step that we will ever take. God, I pray that as we enter back into worship, that we will be able to worship you with a reckless abandon that these songs won't just be words that we're singing, but they will become a way of life. I pray that you breathe peace and comfort across this room. I pray that for the people that need to make their first step to get out of the cycle, that you would give them the courage to do it before they leave tonight. I thank you for my friends. We pray these things in your name. Amen.